to the Nomcast, the Netflix original movie podcast. I am your host, Andrew Morgan. You can follow the show at NomcastPod on Twitter and Instagram, and you can visit us on the web at NomcastPod.com. All right. Thanks for being here. Glad to have you with us. Later in the show, we will have an interview with director Sean Cawthon. He is the man behind the new documentary, Netflix versus the World, which is available now on Amazon Prime. It's a great chat. I I hope you guys stick around. It's filled with all kinds of info on the story of Netflix from David to Goliath and where things are now with Netflix and the ongoing streaming wars. So stick around for that. But up first, uh, we will be talking about the new Netflix drama, The White Tiger, with my bunkmate in the Rooster Coop film critic, Chris Frodell of Arguing With Myself. How are you, sir? Namaste, Andrew. (laughs) <laughs> namaste to you too sir uh huh? glad to have you here little on brand glad to be yeah, here absolutely and you know i i had to bring on my foreign correspondent uh as <laughs> much as that is your title or the ambassador i forget the exact uh designation we had for you nomcast ambassador and Perfect. uh and i i have to say i'm i'm a little upset with this one that you've assigned <laughs> me to because it was mostly it was in English? It in subtitles. Correct. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but I won't hold yeah. that against you. Well, I appreciate that. But uh, thank you, as always, for coming on. Uh, you're always a pleasure to have here, my friend. So thank you for that. Um, this movie, uh, I don't know how much you knew about it going in, uh, just for everybody else. Uh, Zero. Who... Okay. Um so this was a New York Times bestseller by Arvind Adiga. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Um, that you are, you know, <laughs> excellent. Thank you. Uh, which you said was what 2008? Yes. Yeah. So this has been out a while. Uh, it's amazing that this type of story, because it's a very compelling story, has taken uh, this long to kind of get to the screen. And and of course, uh, some of the people behind it make a lot of sense. Uh, the this film has been uh, championed from executive producers like Priyanka Chopra Jonas, who is in the film, and Ava DuVernay, who does a lot of work for Netflix, uh, including 13th, which is an amazing documentary, uh, and the miniseries When They See Us. Uh, she's also the director of Selma. So she likes to, to kind of bring these kind of minority voices and kind of the voice of, you know, like these kind of, you know, rising up this uh you know trying to like i don't want to compare this movie fully to slave stories however you there are parallels that this is kind of almost like a modern version of a slavery type tale and you can see that and and she really does uh champion those type of stories and so it's not shocking that she put her weight behind this to get this to the big screen uh, it's also brought by uh, writer-director Raman Barani, 
who, if anyone saw on HBO, the uh, the HBO film Fahrenheit 451, the adaptation of the famous book of that. Uh, he also has done many other kind of moving dramas coming from a place of poverty or low income. So you can kind of see where he he got inspired by this story. Um he did movies like Man Push Cart, 99 Homes, Chop Shop. So if you've seen any of those, uh, that is him as well. So this story, uh, it, like I said, it was a very famous book. Uh, Priyanka Chopra Jonas. I keep forgetting the Jonas part because she is married to Nick <laughs> Jonas uh, right Nick. now. Yeah. Um, she asked, like once she heard that this was being adapted, she asked to sign on after uh, you know she saw that this was going to be happening, and then she wa- she reached out and she wanted to be not only a part, being an actress, of course, but now, like I said, she is producing and trying to get this thing made and distributed, and then of course it landed at Netflix. So you said you didn't know much about it, so now that I kind of laid that out for you. Um, did you at least see like anything like a trailer or anything leading in, or did you go in absolutely cold? Absolutely cold. <clears throat> okay. I, uh, the only thing I saw of it was, uh, little advertisements would come up. I'd see the same, uh, beginning clip and I'd be like, all right, I'm going to watch it. I don't need to, to know anything pre uh, prior. Yeah. But I, uh, I, I like to do that anyway. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I've uh, the early reviews have been relatively positive. Uh, I feel like this movie has a little bit of a head of steam behind it, uh, you know, and it actually ended up uh, the number two movie and number five overall on that Netflix top ten uh, over the weekend. So it, it is being well received and watched and you know responded to uh, by audiences, but. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's one of those tales that I, I didn't know of. I didn't know of the book. Uh, and, and when I saw the trailer and some of the early reviews or how they were kind of positioning this in the marketing, um, we kind of talked a little off air about it. A lot of people have said this is, you know, like an Indian version of Scarface or uh, this has some parallels to the movie Parasite, which won Best Picture last year, you know, kind of like, um, you know, trying to you know move up in your station when you know kind of the society that you live in you know kind of puts their thumb down upon you essentially um and because this movie uh for anyone who doesn't know the actual story is the epic journey of a poor indian driver who must use his wit and cunning to break free from servitude to his rich masters and rise to the top of the heap that is a very, very, um, it doesn't give the story justice. Let's put it that way. <laughs> like it's, it's so cursory. It's, it's yes, that is no, all no, true. Um, but there's a lot, a lot to go with that. Um, so now that you have seen the film, what are your general impressions of the film? Like how, how do you see this film? Do you, do you agree with the sentiments of what maybe the early critics were saying and, and how it was kind of positioning itself. Yeah. Um, I see similarities in other stories. Uh, yeah. It, I, I see this person of uh, poor standing trying to, to get out of it. Uh, you know, it keeps on uh, using the analogy of the rooster cage and uh, he does not want to be in that cage anymore. Uh, and we'll do anything to get him out of it. Um, right. He seems, I, I don't know, uh, like 
very observing of his surroundings, but like I like I, I see an innocence in that. Mm, right. Where it's just like oh, I'm gonna use, you know, what I hear to get me out of the position I'm currently in. And somehow that changes. Right. It, it changes and it seems like uh not dastardly, but uh, you know, he'll go at any lengths to get out of his uh cast. Is that what they uh yeah, his cast, his station in life. Yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, yeah. and and to be honest, I mean, it's a movie that's complicated in terms of trying to tell a story like this. Because, again, something right. I saw in the earlier reviews or how it was kind of being positioned was, you know, that you're kind of supposed to come away with this saying good for him and like kind of like rooting him on as how this story unfolds in his, as yeah. it said in the description, his rise to the top of the heap. Um, it's interesting because like you said, there are moments in this film, uh, where, you know, he even outwardly says, you know, I don't, I don't want to tell you this. <laughs> I'm embarrassed by this, but this is right. what I did. And, and still told stories of things he did to get ahead, but that weren't necessarily on the up and up that, you know, right. were, were not even good by his standards and, and the standards they set in this film, which are of course, as we see, as it goes on can get to, uh, you know, criminal levels and things like that. So, you know, we, we definitely see him go all out. Um, and what those links are make this a complicated story. Um, but ultimately if you take this story as kind of like a slow burn of almost, if you, if you, position it from a place of you know the caste system or like a modern slavery tale or any you know this power struggle in a free democracy you're gonna be on his side but it's almost like to what end um you know because we kind of talk off air like you know it's not necessarily morality tale because you know you're not exactly getting full justification or retribution for crimes and and it makes it tougher to judge this protagonist in this certain scenario. Oh yeah. Exactly. Uh you know, going along with the uh the theme of slavery, um in other in other stories concerning slavery you're always rooting for the slave to get out of their current uh, situation. For sure. And, and that could be at any means. You have no issue with that because <laughs> I'm going to take a stand. Slavery is bad. <laughs> there, you heard Somebody it had to first. say it. Someone had yeah. to say it. Um, but you have, you're rooting for them to, to get out of their situation because you know how terrible it is. You see his situation. You know how terrible it is. And he's the white tire because there's only, you know, uh, once in a gen- generation uh, Correct. where uh, someone has his intelligence, his drive, and it's, it's noticed. But there are other factors keeping him in his current situation. As you said, putting the thumb down on him and uh, uh, preventing him from succeeding, which is frustrating enough. But... You know, later on, as uh, the film pr- progresses, yeah, you, you kind of stand on that line of, do I keep on rooting for him or do I 
not like how he's navigating to get out of his situations. Yeah, I, I, I huh. you know, it's, it's weird tough. because uh, it, it is tough because you are seeing him do some things that you wouldn't root for anyone to do. But, you know, as the film progresses on and things get worse for him, mm-hmm. um, then you really kind of go, well, yeah, they, they the people that he he acts upon uh, definitely deserve uh, what they got in on some level whether yes. it be the exact thing that happens or some equivalent um, to take them down a peg or out of his life. And he, he's, he's opportunistic, uh, yes. it, you know, and, you know, but I think a lot of these things are, you know, I think how this movie will work in America, maybe why it did also work here as a popular story here in America is that I think a lot of people feel even in a capitalist society versus the uh, the type of democracy that they have in India is and the you know the outdated caste system and everything else yeah. that you know you're dealing with you know how capitalism you know there's constant talk in in politics these days of you know the one percent and yep. you know and then everybody else and you know they kind of posit the same thing in India. Um, I think it's a little bit different. Uh, we have a little bit more variety, I guess you could say, in terms of our uh, different uh, lots in life and our freedoms and, and some of those things. But it's not too dissimilar when you're kind of making a lot of decisions, especially, you know, maybe for, you know, new immigrants in this country or different other just uh, the poorer class or, you know, people like that who you know may not have the job they like um and and maybe it's even dangerous or maybe they're afraid that they're going to lose that job because they need it desperately to live and you know if someone tries to take something away from them then in america if that was that type of story here you'd go oh yeah no i get the desperation i see why this story is unfolding in this way and, right. you know, you kind of see it that way. And here, like you said, the, the rooster coop analogy, uh, you know, the metaphor there, uh, it's kind of on the nose, but it's it's pretty accurate. And it's accurate in oh, a yeah. lot of the parts of the world. Um, and I think that's why this story has resonance with a lot of people all over the world. Yeah, again, it's just, ooh, he rides that line uh, for a good portion of the movie. Yeah, um, but overall, I, I, I'll put my chips on the table i i I enjoyed this movie uh i think this is a a story definitely worth telling um and you know it's it's interesting because it's not just as simple as you know the the caste system or or any of these type of things it's it's how how these situations can change how people do rise to power it's about you know like even even the stuff with uh baram's family uh baram being the the protagonist in this film um his family is also uniquely kind of a master a master to him as well because he's indebted to them uh financially as well as you know uh how how they kind of live on you know through uh trying to expand families arrange marriages etc and so there's a lot of layers here in terms of what 
puts their thumb on a person of this of this low caste of, of this uh you know type of position in life and i i think it 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 displays it very well i would say that the film is a little too long i think it yes. does meander towards probably the the end of the second act there's probably about 10 or 15 minutes there um coincidentally i don't think it's too much of a spoiler i think there's um you know there's there's a moment in the film where uh someone leaves one of the ma- three major people in the in the movie leave the movie and doesn't yep. come back and when that happens um i think the movie suffers for it because yep. if we're talking this is kind of a three person dynamic in a way um at least at the head of this film then you know it kind of took a lot of the the steam that the film had um and made it kind of sympathizing for the wrong people and 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 really kind of going wayward uh what did you think overall of the film um yeah i i enjoyed it as you said uh, a little too long there's uh certain edits that i didn't agree with right um basically showing the middle of the movie at the beginning of the movie. Like, yeah, the structure was odd. Yeah. You could have kept that a little more linear, but I had an issue with the dynamic with the grandmother and Mm. uh, the landowner, the, the father of uh, Ashok. So he would come into the village and get money from everyone. Yeah, it's not really known to like what they provide for that money. Well, regardless, they you know, he would go and collect. And if you didn't have the money, you know, you you were reprimanded. You were you were uh chastised for Correct. not having that money and and basically beaten for it. Sure. Um but the father didn't have the money for yeah, the landowner, mm-hmm. right? But he had to give money to the grandmother. Right. Yeah. Couldn't she have stepped up? Yeah. And and, uh, so I was just like, I I don't understand that. And then for uh, Valram to send money back to her on the regular was surprising. Like I would have been like, I'm gone. See ya. You, You do nothing for me. You just, you know, beat me down like you did my father. Right. And and my brother is he he's stuck. He you know, he he's not going anywhere. So yeah. you got him. But you know, th- I I had uh an issue with the dynamic between, you know, who did what for whom, you know? Yeah, that is it a little wasn't vague. so clear. Yeah, that is a little vague and I but I think overall a lot of that family stuff worked really well. I think that especially with the brother and some of the the, the confrontations that they had and, and the confrontations that Baram has with his grandmother as well, I yeah. think those speak a lot to the heart of the movie and, and really defined that segment of his life and, yeah. you know, kind of positioning him to be really kind of stuck. You know, you, you need him to be stuck. You need oh, yeah. him to be... Um, subservient uh, in in many different ways. You need him to yeah. kind of buy into this family that he's working for, and you need it to hurt when 
it doesn't go right. So, you know, I think they they set that up very well, especially in the first half of the film. Um, and then after uh, there's a uh, how do I want to put this while being non spoilery? There's an accident that occurs. Yeah. And um, I think that changes the movie big time. And I think it some of the best scenes are the stuff that happens after like immediately after um, a lot of people point to the scene uh, where Baram is, is welcomed in by a family uh, that he works for that normally treats him like garbage. Um, and then they're treating him well because they need something from him. And just the gall and, and the acting in that scene is so well done. Um, and yeah. overall, by the way, I think uh, for the fact that, Adarsh Garav, who plays Baram, um, I yeah. haven't seen him in anything. Uh, he hasn't really crossed over. He was in a Netflix India series called Leela. Um, okay. Uh, so, uh, but from what I understand, even then, that's not hot. He, he wasn't like top of the call sheet. So, um, yeah. so good, good on him for kind of standing out and breaking out here with that role. Um, because the other two, yeah. uh, Rajkumar uh, Rao, uh, play, playing Ashok. Uh, was you know in a lot of Indian films, um, but didn't really cross over so much yet in America either. But at least he had more work, a larger resume uh, in India. And then Priyanka Chopra Jonas is kind of on a whole different path. Uh, her playing Pinky in this film, uh, who's married to Ashok. She's uh, she was on Quantico on ABC, where she was like the first Bollywood actress to be a lead on a, you know, like a Hollywood project like that. Uh, and that was a huge deal at the time, especially in that community. So, um, it's good that she put her weight behind this because that's, you know, kind of shows you how much this type of story means to, uh, to India and Indian Americans and, and showing how that system is very outdated and, and what it does to people. Yeah, uh, she was uh, quite vocal in the film to make every, all the other characters know that this is outdated thinking. Uh, you know, you have to look beyond uh, your your narrow view of the world. You know, for sure. But uh, I will say that she, uh, I had a a larger problem with her character more than most uh, because okay. I think she is she waffles. Uh, with how her perspective is I like because there's one scene in particular where she's talking to Baram and you know she kind of you know has a nice sit down with him and tries to explain to him that you know he needs to figure out what he wants out of life and to do more than to be a servant to these people and that he shouldn't even be a servant and they treat him like garbage and trying to like really kind of rally him in a way to kind of shake his worldview to be like hey wake up and plan do something with your life um that isn't this and break out get out and but at the same time the literally the scene right before it she treats him like garbage herself (laughs) in front of another person so and and that's kind of her like she'll have these moments where she's like hey don't treat him like that and then immediately be like but Thank you for helping me with covering up stuff yeah. in this film and yeah. and making and and me allowing that to 
transpire. So, and then listen, you're, you're used to that life, you know, you don't want to take it away. So, uh, so easily. So for sure. (laughs) And that's why I thought made, Um, uh, a shook a more complex character. Cause he's in the same way. Baram is kind of stuck between his family, his masters and all these people who have their thumbs on him. Ashok yeah. is just the the rich version of that because he's the youngest uh, in his family, and yep. he has different worldview than them. Um, you know, he married an American. I mean, technically she's Indian, but she you know, when they met she, in America, she moved to America and uh, when she was twelve or something like that. Correct, and yeah. you know, so you know, it's a very different worldview that he has, a very different relationship that he wants to and does have with Baram at at times uh, from what, how his family treats him. So, you know, I thought his storyline makes a lot of sense. There's a little too much of him in the story, to be quite honest, but, um, but I, for sure, um, where, where the payoff happens in this story, the, the big, scene the climax yeah. of his arc um is more impactful because of how complex his story is to me he seemed like you know oh they're gonna be best friends and and like i almost had like a uh an idea of uh his and balram's uh, uh relationship was gonna go a certain way and it didn't so i was just like were they were they hinting at something? Mm. Was Balram so. uh, in love with him? I don't think so. No, I didn't. I didn't get that. I I think he was maybe in search of. I a, mean, I, I of a friend. I mean, of or a friend a person, of that uh, lifestyle of you know. I I I. Well, being I, rich I like, in I, a I like way this. can be yeah. very lonely. Uh, yeah. You know, and a lot of times the the relationship. I, I don't know that for sure. <laughs> I'm slowly realizing as more money uh comes you know strolling into my my bank account but um that small that people like money? you will will disappear uh from my yes. review very yes. very quickly. Um, Andrew, can we do another uh can we do another episode? Who are you again? Yeah, what's that? You're breaking <laughs> up, Chris. Um but absolutely. I I can see where you don't really see him have many connections besides his wife and when uh yeah. when his wife uh, you know, they whenever they have problems, you know, Baram kind of, you know, comes to his aid and, and is a way yeah. to kind of get out of that, that, you know, his brother or his family outside of that won't do. And you don't see like yeah. a friend to rely on, especially because he's not in America where he was, it seems like for some time. So you don't have that. Uh, you know, I'm sure he may be away from relationships that helped him through things when he was over there. So it's a very different feeling, a very different uh, lifestyle that he has there and a very different kind of job description in a way being with his family and, and what he has to take care of versus, you know, just enjoying his life in America uh, with his wife at the time. So, yeah. I, you know, you get a lot of a difference there. Um, I'm, gonna try to like pare this down a little bit uh for the people i i I did find it interesting that they do take a shot at slumdog millionaire (laughs) at one Ah, point i was gonna point that out too yep because this movie is basically for anyone who thought like oh is this gonna be anything like that uh the answer is no um (laughs) because it's kind of the anti slumdog you know it's it's a more gritty 
way of solving your problems versus uh, trying to, you know, hope and a wish. Win a game you're, show. You know, win yeah. a game show. It's, you know, there's no savior in, in this story to get you out of that. Not to say I'm a person who's anti-Slumdog. I think it's a very good movie. Um, but this movie seems to be um, something that takes real aim at the dichotomy between uh, the wealthy and the poor in that country and how much of that country is poor and yet feels like that they have to be loyal to these masters on all fronts or else, you know, what are you then? Uh, it's it's yeah. a very much an identity film um, as well as, you know, this slow burn uh, arc of, you know, uh, it feels almost like a revenge plot. You know, it, it's I, I, it's right. weird. Um, I don't know if you had this type of thought when you were watching it, but, you know, because like I said before, a lot of people compared it to like Parasite or or Scarface. But to me, I did think of kind of the, the slavery aspect of it. And I kind of wanted to, you know, because like if we were saying like, oh, OK, well, like like, for instance, I rewatched the end of Django Unchained. To be yeah. like, okay, how is this a different feeling? How is this a different outcome to his arc than it was for Baram? And, you know, at the end of Django Unchained, um, he kills everyone except yeah. for his fellow uh, slaves and, and sets them free. Sorry to spoil Django Unchained, everybody. Um, but, you know, <sighs> he, he gets away. Uh, and, you know, that's the end of his story, or at least the end of that part of his story. And so it is this kind of revenge plot. There's a uh, break, uh, jailbreak type thought uh, to set uh, his fellow slaves free, including his uh, wife, I believe, who's Carrie Washington. Um, yeah. But, you know, this story, he's it's a little bit different because it's like a series of cuts that happened to him that just become too much and then acts upon, you know, takes this opportunity to, you know, essentially uh, rid two of his big problems, the obstacles in his way and to get his only chance for upward mobility. Um, but then yeah. we're, like you said, we were talking off air and it's like, well, this isn't a morality tale then it's literally, or, or the morality is complex and, yeah. you know, it's it's moral because he had no other choice. Um, but even then in the film, did you notice there's like one part uh, where he kind of does have a choice and he acknowledges it? And then he's like, I don't know why I didn't take advantage of this before I did what he ends up ultimately doing later in the film. Yes. So, yeah. yeah so there is a yeah, moment because... where he, he gets a little bit of scratch. Uh, and, and I think there is a moment where he is conflicted like i could go i can get out of this or yeah. you know uh or at least start something new potentially uh with that yeah um but then he admits in the voiceover which by the way was not a fan of that's i think one of the weak spots of this film yeah um is the the voiceover narration and positing it as like a a letter to a chinese diplomat of some sort yeah, of representative like two he sees him for like two seconds and he's rebuffed and there's no dialogue yeah. there's no exchange it's it does not pay off i think that is one of the worst things about this film 
um, the and the fact that it's too long, uh, and the fact that I, I uh, they gloss. It- well, and the fact that they gloss over the fact that his family might be compromised by his actions too. Right. Um, that they do that. So there are some things that I think um, could have been buttoned up or or more. You well, know, that's the thing when when he's uh, when he's at that crossroads and he says, "I could just go," right? And he thinks about his family. Yes, but regardless, his decision ultimately affects his family. Right. So I I can't really stand behind him in that aspect only because if he had no other alternative, then it's like, well, you know, that's that's the decision he made, but he does. Right. And but- and I yeah, I I can't it's tough. It's tough to to be like, yes, woo. Yeah, go, and- go for it, you know? And it's complicated because, in a way, you think these people, for being so reprehensible, deserve any kind of retribution upon their heads. So mm. it, it is complicated in that uh, as well. But, yeah, I would say that this is a definitely a complex story, but a story definitely worth watching. Um, if I had to put a, a, a grade on it, I think if... Uh, you know, if you follow me on Letterboxd, please do. Um, I'd probably end up giving this like a three and a half out of five. Um, you know, something that I think was very well done. A lot of good performances. Uh, the cinematography is a standout. I love the music that they use. Uh, shout out to Punjabi MC. Uh, I love that song. And yeah. Jay-Z ended up doing a, a version of it here in America. Or at least like, a, you know, with that as the backbeat. Um yeah. yeah, so there's a lot of good stuff in here, but there are some structural things and plot devices, if you will, yeah. with the voiceover stuff and everything else that I think um, it could have been better designed, better perform, uh, better executed. Um, and for me, that's why it knocks it down a little bit, but definitely something that people should should look out for. How did you feel? Agreed. Uh, I will. I will say. Uh my grade is a little less than yours. I will say three Midland kind of uh, grade for it only because of what I spoke of uh, my issues with the structure uh, rooting for the protagonist uh, to a point and then scratching her head going, how do I feel about this person now? You know? Sure. But uh yeah, it was uh, it was definitely a story that, uh, in spite of its similarities with stuff that's been released before, uh, it does tell its own tale. It's unique in that aspect. But uh, yeah, I, I would say if if I was more attentive to my letterbox, I would give it a three out of five. If I had to yeah. grade it, and that's fair. And I think it's sitting around those type of grades. I would say between Letterbox, IMDb, Rotten Tomatoes, it's like a solid grade or slightly above that with some people giving maybe a little more credence to uh, the screenplay maybe than I would, at least uh, from a structural standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a lot to like here. So I would definitely recommend people catch this one, especially if you did like some of the movies that you know it is getting comparison to because at the end of the day, I don't think they register – same for same on any of the the ones like a parasite or scarface or any or even django or anything like those but at 
at the end of the day, it is a, a unique perspective, especially if you, you are not an Indian scholar uh, like myself or Chris Ferdell. So, you know, <laughs> definitely get out there and, and check this one out and then kind of maybe match up and, and, and see what we say and, and, and go back and forth and, and tell us what you think. Uh, reach out to us on socials uh, at NomCastPod on Twitter and Instagram and, and really drop us a line. Thank you, as always, for coming on, Chris. I appreciate you uh, coming along for this one. I hope Thank you uh, for having me. You, you get yet another stamp in your NomCast passport. So, oh, my you know. God. That gives me ideas for promo. <laughs> <laughs> Always the best, man. Because we don't have an Indian story that you've done thus far, correct? No. Uh, I think uh, I've hit Africa. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, all over. No, uh, no India. Now I have India. Excellent. Well, I'm glad I can help you fill that out for you. Uh, you know, we'll get you extra paperwork to fill out on, uh, after this one. Um, but awesome. everyone else, uh, please stick around. Uh, we have a great interview with Sean Cawthon, the director of Netflix versus the World, the documentary that is out on Amazon Prime right now, giving the origin story of Netflix and their battle against Blockbuster. So stick around for that. Uh, we'll listen to that right after this break. Have those Marvel blues while Black Widow's theatrical release date is consistently delayed? Well, turn that frown upside down because yet another MCU podcast is here to guide you through the MCU one movie at a time. That's right, Mike. Each episode, we break down one movie from the MCU and talk about its connections with the source material, comic books. Which means I get to learn so many fascinating things like about Alpha Flight. The Canadian Avengers. Who knew? And Moon Knight. A multiple personality superhero. Seriously? And then there's Man-Thing. Yeah, not really sure how to explain that one. Pretty sure no one can. Yet another MCU podcast, part of the Forgotten Entertainment family. Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Dave. And join us every Thursday for a new episode of Two Player Bros, a podcast about two guys who play way too many video games. Join me and Dave as we talk about the latest in Xbox, PlayStation, PC, and VR news, previews, and reviews. We have it all, and we play it all. And join us every other week for Post Game, where we play through and dive deep into our favorite modern classics and new releases. That's Two Player Bros, available every Thursday wherever you get your podcast. part of the Forgotten Entertainment family. I am happy to be joined by director Sean Cawthon. His documentary, Netflix vs. the World, is out now on Amazon Prime. He is doing a great job with his binge-worthy pictures. I'm glad to have you here, Sean. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Wow. I mean, that's a, that's a hell of an intro. Uh, thank you. Hopefully <laughs> the interview lives up to the hype. Yeah. Uh, hey, that's on you, buddy. Uh, I, I only book these things, so I appreciate you coming on. Um, you've done a great job here. I, I was very interested. I've started to see uh, your your film, Netflix versus the World, uh, come around on different podcast channels. I've seen interviews you've done, and of course the movie popping up on my Amazon Prime, uh, you know, queue as well. And I was glad that you were able to come on. Uh, you know, you seem to kind of latch on to these projects with your production company. Um, dealing in pop culture and most notably the rise of something within pop culture subjects like the office and Nickelodeon and the subject we'll talk mostly about today, Netflix. What makes these stories appealing to you in documentary form about these type of stories? Well, um, I, my background, uh, pre making movies was I used to work out in the LA and I would do like celebrity interviews, red carpets and stuff like that. So that's kind of the world I was used to. And even before that I worked 
for MTV doing a TV show called Room Raiders. I don't know if you ever saw that. I, I do, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I too am old. <laughs> so I, um, I worked on two seasons of that in Arizona and Texas. Uh, but even before that, I went to the University of Texas. And at the University of Texas, uh, there's two routes you could go in film. You could take film class where you're using actual film stock, or you could go the digital route, which was documentary. Right. I didn't want to pay for film stock, and I knew that film was <laughs> headed out the door, and I didn't want to learn how to cut physical film. So I was like, I'm not going to go drop like 5K. I don't have 5K to go make like a student film that no one's going to watch. Sure. So I went the documentary route. So that's kind of where I fell into documentary, and I learned to love it because I'll be honest, I didn't watch documentaries before going to film school. Right. Uh, so uh, one of the things that really caught my eye with the first film I worked on, um, which I didn't direct that one, but I was the cinematographer and I did some uh, producing on it, was The Orange Years, which is out now also. Right. And it just really spoke to me because I was a kid that grew up on Nickelodeon and such. And so when I was in post on The Orange Years, because I also edited with uh, one of the directors, uh I was just thinking about what the next thing I was going to do, because like they said, you don't want to finish a project and then not have something else going because people are always like, Hey, what's the next thing you're doing? And if you don't have anything, you're kind of losing that momentum. So I'd read a book called Netflix, the Epic Battle for America's Eyeballs. And it was this great book by a writer, uh, Gina, Gina Keating. And so I reached out to her and I was like, Hey, I'm going to be doing a documentary. Can I interview you? And she was saying, um, you know what, I actually started filming some stuff. Maybe we can join up. So that's kind of where Netflix First of the World came. Yeah, I was. that was actually was going to be my question. I wanted to see where, uh, where the spark came from for this. And I noticed that uh, her name popped up and, and her book, and she's uh, listed as the, the writer of this film. So I didn't know you know, how you guys connected, uh, whether it was just something that you sought out, what your relationship with her is, and and how that all came about. But where did she get kind of the the impetus to do this? I mean, her book, I believe, came out in 2012 or something right. earlier like that. And then, 2012. You know, and then obviously, when did you reach out to her? Like, how long has this process been going through? Oh, man. Uh, I don't even know anymore. <laughs> um, I reached out. I mean, truthfully, from when I reached out to Gina, I reached out probably... I forget the year, but uh, well, I'll think of it through while we're talking on the no, podcast. I reached out to her in <laughs> April. We got together and started booking talent in May. We started shooting in June, July, and I had an edit ready uh, in January. So it was that quick. It, it took a less than a year. Now, over that span, I had different things like the animation took a while to come in. Uh, things like that. But doing the previous movie, The Orange Years, had me prepped. I knew what I needed to do. I need. I know what I needed to do as in the structure. Right. And since I have an editing background, because when I used to work in Hollywood, I used to edit a show that would air in Spain uh, and edit you know, different other projects. Sometimes we had clients like uh, Walt Disney that we'd have to put like a Pirates of the Caribbean at the world's end, like little story with like Johnny Depp and stuff like that. So sure. we'd have to edit that up. So I had, I had editing experience. And when you're a filmmaker and you already know where all the edits going to go, it helps you know what to ask in the interviews and such like that. Right. So it made the process really go fast. And also 
uh, Gina was a uh, writer, not a writer, uh, a reporter for Reuters. I can never say that word, right? But the news organization. So she had covered Netflix, like their rise. She was like the reporter going in to meet with like a Reed Hastings where they're trying to pitch their new their new tech company and how they were going to take over the world. So she had that experience with all these people. So she had the relationship. She knew the story. So it wasn't, we found out some things along the way that maybe she didn't know why she was, you know, covering them. Sure. Uh, But she already knew the story. So it allowed the, the structure to like really go fast. It wasn't like a eight year documentary to get really what's behind Netflix because she'd already done the groundwork. Yeah. Um, before we get into to something that I, I find interesting um, with the relationship with Netflix, where this uh, where it can go, where this story can go, how it landed on Amazon Prime and and a lot of the questions that people have with that. Um, talk to me uh, and just for our audience sake. I mean, I've seen the documentary. So uh, tell people, you know, kind of, you know, kind of the elevator pitch of that. Like, w- what do you think? people will take away from this film and and how how, what type of information do you want people to be presented in this film well i would say that um it was it was a very difficult film going in because when i told people about it they would be like oh that's interesting but it's it's netflix everyone knows the story of netflix and it's kind of like (laughs) you know what people probably told james cameron you're going to make a movie about titanic like we know it (laughs) seems like sure but it was it was finding out where netflix actually came from because it's not like every little company just starts and becomes this giant like you you have to go through things and there's so many like of the dot coms because netflix was a dot com that just did not survive the dot com burst so right it was mainly like trying to find out that story and show that it wasn't just like every every decision was great like and and another aspect was um everyone feels like they know the story of Netflix, right? Everyone's heard the the thing about like Blockbuster didn't buy Netflix for $50 million, what idiots and stuff like that. And I really wanted to look back and put myself in anyone's shoes at that time and see if it was like the whole hindsight is 2020. (laughs) Yeah. There's so many different times where this could have gone very differently. Uh, (laughs) I I actually laugh because I feel like we're probably similar in age where even uh, little tidbits here that make me laugh, like uh, Circuit City's entrance into this, like Blockbuster's poor decision in terms of acquiring them, uh, seeking out Enron's help should tickle a lot of people as well. Just so many poor decisions at certain points in Blockbuster's history that kind of aided this uh you know situation that they got themselves in uh losing out to netflix in the long term but i think what struck me especially is how close it really was like blockbuster was really on the precipice of knocking netflix back really hard and just some last minute really poor decisions and pulling the plug on some on some things one of the things I did want to get into with you is I, I've heard you say previously that you didn't get into certain festivals because Netflix was a sponsor and they and they didn't want the the festival didn't want to appear biased or have Netflix appear biased or get Netflix mad. I find that hilarious <laughs> because it's like I, I thought your doc was pretty fair towards the story. Like you said, it has a very journalistic aspect to it. A lot of you know straight from the horse's mouth 
uh, access to to a lot of people who were there for this story. It's kind of just you know you guys pitch it as a you know David and Goliath thing, and then Goliath you know is now present uh, in the terms of Netflix. But it's interesting that you know people were so sensitive about Netflix's reaction. Is what has been your experience with Netflix during this process? Were they helpful with gathering the information? I know Ted Sarandos is in the film a bit, but it doesn't appear like the other interviews of some of the former Netflix employees. So in terms of like modern employees, like have they, did they help you with access? And and, no, no. So (laughs) it was kind of like um, when Gina wrote her book, like Netflix was originally not helpful and then jumped in to make sure that everything was correct before she published her book. Sure. So we were doing the same thing. So I mean, if people watched it, it's a lot of the the founding members, the founding team. Um, Mark Randolph, for people that watched the, the the movie, he was kind of like forgotten to history. He was the Wozniak, you know, right. that was kind of pushed to the side. And even for a time period, it was like Reed Hastings, founder of Netflix. They kind of dropped the whole co-founder, sure. which, you know, Mark and Reed. And it wasn't until later where they brought Mark back into the fold as a, uh, as a co-founder. So it was just kind of, I mean, I'll tell you this without getting into politics, Reed knew about it. Uh, we had contact with him, even though he didn't contact us back, but we knew people in his inner circle and knew he knew about it and, right. you know, would hear stuff. So, uh, yeah, so it, everybody was just afraid. Everybody's, I mean, I reached out to many different people. I mean, I'll go through and I'll look at criticism, which I'm all up for criticism, but sometimes people will say, oh, it's just a bunch of white people. And I'm like, well, I I reached out to people of color, people of different like sexual orientation, you know, things like that. But people were terrified because what is there to gain for being in a documentary about Netflix? Nothing. What is there to lose? Oh, you could get blacklisted. Sure. Yeah. You (laughs) say the wrong thing. thing. Yeah. So everybody was really afraid. And uh, for your viewers, it's not like, I'm not saying like, every festival was like, Oh, we can't do this. But I knew some like mid-level festivals that were like, they would have someone involved with the festival. And was like, Oh, I loved your film. Like you got to bring it to our film fest. And I'm like, okay. And then they would be like, uh, just found out Netflix is a sponsor. So yeah, I can't get past that. <laughs> and I was like, it, it's fine. I mean, what we ran into is, you know, COVID hit when we were doing our festival run. So like, sure. We had a festival in New Jersey and it went digital, which was not a fun experience as a filmmaker. It's like, you can log in at this time to watch your film. So I'm, I, I was like, I'll do it. And I logged in and it's like, I'm on my home computer right here watching my own film yeah. by myself. It, it was right. not, it's not the greatest experience and all the other festivals after that just like canceled. So, but at least I got one festival in, uh, which was a hometown. I wanted to pick a festival that either was near Netflix or near Blockbuster. And since Blockbuster, all those people are in Dallas. I went to the Lone Star Film Festival in Fort Worth and we had a bunch of people from Blockbuster come and watch it, which which is great because a lot of people from Blockbuster said they really wanted to thank us for making the film because for the first time in a long time, they felt proud to work at Blockbuster because right. you know for years, people have just been taking you know, shots at them. Like if they're at a party and, Oh, you work at Blockbuster? You are idiots. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, you know, as a person who worked in a movie theater, uh, and in, in that industry and that's starting to, you know, tilt 
<laughs> because of Netflix too. Um, so you know, we'll we'll all be looking back in some of these uh, how we consumed media stories and and really kind of you know try to have some pride about it but then also know that we might also get steamrolled <laughs> at some point um you did mention you know it's it's kind of interesting to see how netflix did make some mistakes even though i i i totally will say to every everyone who wants to check out the film and or is concerned about how netflix uh looks in this light i definitely think this is a very fair and balanced look and it's more like historical and and you know with a lot of people confirming how things went on both sides of the fence so you know i don't see where people would uh get too bent out of shape if you're on either side um but i was fascinating by some of the mistakes that netflix made over this time that's in the documentary and a lot of them you notice how like even stuff like having a price hike uh, happen and then having to kind of walk it back or you know having a more personal touch back then was fascinating to see because you know how big they are now do you feel like that's something that is definitely gonna like it has to go by the wayside with how big they've gotten like you can't you know have a video with uh ted sarando saying sorry we raised the <laughs> raised a couple bucks uh like that recently just happened where they got a lot of flack for that so well, now they're at the size where it, they're just it's just so big you get to a point where you're just of a certain size that it like the minor things that can kill a small company just really don't affect you i mean right. there's so much in the movie like netflix first of the world could have been you know, a two and a half hour movie and we just had to cut out stuff. I mean, people will say, Hey, you know, this feels like it's Netflix, Netflix versus blockbuster. And it's like, yes, you don't know how much Amazon I had to cut out or Redbox because sure. all those storylines, it was just going to be a really long uh, movie. And then it was going to be like, well, you should have made like two movies. <laughs> sure. And so it kind of be, it was kind of like, uh, I mean, there's so much on blockbuster I had to cut out like blockbuster had the whole idea about making original exclusive content. They were one of the uh, uh, backers on the movie Monster. So they were kind of going that route anyway. I mean, we, we talked about Enron with the streaming. They were looking at streaming. It's sure. just they picked the wrong partners. And it's kind of like one of those things of like Blockbuster was so big that they had stumbles. But at a point, you're only allowed one or two stumbles. Right. And that just you know, you're on your way down. Luckily for uh, Netflix, like their stumbles were so small and they recovered so quickly and they were so nimble that those small little stumble stumbles like quicksters and such like that, it hurt them for a short time, but they bounced back quickly. For sure. And uh, that's one of the things that I did take away from the documentary uh, that, you know, applies to the current landscape because, you know, the way your, your documentary wraps up is kind of looking more towards what is more often than not referenced as the streaming wars, which we talk a lot about on this podcast uh, because, you know, we cover Netflix original movies and right now you're seeing the constant battle, especially now in the COVID environment of Netflix just always being one step ahead, it feels like. And I feel like that's where the documentary put things where either Netflix would, you know, completely get some kind of lucky break or that they would pivot very early before a lot of other people did. They always kind of seemed like the smartest people in the room. Um, 
where do you see the landscape right now? Because, like you said, you know, it, this could keep going on. It's funny. I believe you, uh, your your office series is actually a, a a series, not like an actual just straight documentary, right? It feels right. like this could have been something that could be refreshed all the time. You know, like even the the book that this is, you know, based on or what sparked this is now, you know, eight nine years old, and <laughs> even that maybe seems, you know antiquated depending on where that right I, so i mean i would i would get critiques from some people like oh i was expecting this just to be the streaming wars and this was all like nostalgia about video players and such like that and it was like well yeah but like eventually you have to stop or the movie would never end exactly like, <laughs> i mean when i was making this movie i wasn't planning on a pandemic um which <laughs> would have changed the whole idea i mean looking at it i was looking at disney and i was looking at netflix and i was like well netflix you know, they're going to be fine no matter what. But Disney, I, I felt, was going to catch up to them. And all of a sudden, what happened with Disney is they have a great streaming platform. They understand what content needs to go onto it. They had, you know, Star Wars built into it. The Mandalorian's been, like, one of the best, like, streaming shows in the history of streaming. For sure. But something that Disney couldn't have thought about is a pandemic hurting their uh, their Disney parks and stuff like that, which is like cratered part of their business where Netflix is just, you know, all their eggs are in one basket and they're just lucky that that basket is really valuable. Right. Yes, <laughs> of course. Um, so, and then, and then I think you're going to see consolidation. I mean, look at Paramount's about to launch their streaming service. I don't think that's going to last long. Yeah. I think eventually Paramount's going to get bought up by an Apple or a Netflix just for their content. For sure. Because if I'm Netflix, I want to have a Mission Impossible film franchise always on my platform. Or if I'm Apple, I want that. I mean, Apple's just got stupid money. They can do whatever they want. So does Amazon. So there's certain players like Sony and Lionsgate and uh, Paramount that I don't know if they'll exist. They'll kind of be like Fox. And Fox is a division of Disney. Right. Yeah. Which is weird, but it's it's kind of where it has to go. Yeah, and you're starting to even see some of the alignment with some of the newer, more burgeoning studios like A24, I think, has a deal with Apple, and and Neon struck a deal with Hulu, which is owned by Disney, <laughs> you know, because it was a previous product in the Fox deal, and you know, yeah, you are seeing it, and it's happening so fast, and I think COVID pushed a lot of these things that were on the precipice now going really further down the line and really I mean, starting some deals. Look at everyone taking shots at Warner's because they're releasing it at home and in theaters at the same time where yeah. other studios just keep on pushing their movies. And it's like, I mean, we're going to get the James Bond movie probably in like 2022, the rate <laughs> they're pushing it. So, sure. and, and for, for Sony, the reason why they can't do it is because this is their, this is their hell Mary. Like they cannot have, if James Bond fails, like Sony screwed, like they're going to have to probably sell themselves to Disney because Disney's just sitting there waiting on Spider-Man. <laughs> right. Yeah. And there's a whole other thing with the Bond franchise. Cause it's owned by like one MGM family. Well, yeah. yeah. And they, and they, you know, that's their whole world. So they're like, Nope, you're going to do exactly how we want to position this. And you know, it's it's going to take some time. I mean, I think now it's pushed back to like October, November. It just was pushed back again. So you're right at, at the current rate, probably 2022 for a lot of these films. 
But yeah, absolutely. I mean, HBO Max has become a big player because of the Warner, you know, a library that's their strongest suit, you know, and then brought in more stuff under the fold. Disney shot out really well out of the gates because if you have little kids like you and I do, you know, a lot of times you can just throw on uh, an old Disney movie or a Pixar movie and they are delighted or a Marvel movie or any of those things. They have a lot of those things right at their fingertips there as well. And Amazon uh, is playing a whole different game because they have so many, not only COVID proof, but like recession proof stuff with uh, how many things they sell and market and and you know just just prime coming right to you if you have a prime subscription for your groceries so you know it, it's it's weird how how much this is all different but netflix seems to keep growing and growing and they kind of have pivoted to being this global monster um and really kind of pushing towards that uh so uh, for the time being I thought they were going to get hit harder by this, but instead they're actually thriving. I think it's a lot based on the originals, um, which you, you cover in the documentary. Um, Cause that was one of the pitfalls I heard you on a, on a different podcast, late fee cinema say, you know, that you thought that was going to be the death of them. That if, if all the stumbling blocks that they had, like dealing with, you know, starting up with house of cards and Cloverfield, paradox you know in the super bowl commercial and that whole period you know the growing pains of that going up against the studios head-on you thought that that was going to be more their 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 peril here in this game yeah because i was i like i had netflix i always thought i was a uh original like netflix uh customer sure. and i found out i was off by like three years because yeah. i got netflix when i was at college but that's when they were red like i wasn't even like a Netflix subscriber when they back used to be like purple. <laughs> sure. Right. Yeah. I was like, my mind was blown. I was like, what? There's a whole new like Netflix world. I didn't even know. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just, I remember, and you know, I'm a college kid. It's not like I have great insider information, <laughs> but it, I always remember looking at Netflix and I was like, well, basically they built a service around other people's content. So as soon, as soon as other people pulled their content back, like what is Netflix? They're just like a, you know, a storefront with no product. Right. And that's why it was so important for them to do, uh, you know, their original content because if Netflix was just running like every studio's like B and C and D films and they didn't have any blockbusters and it's like hey you want to see home alone three not the first two because those are good yeah, right. the third one with the really weird kid you come to netflix like that that was going to be their business model so sure. the, the fact that they were able to build original content and hit you know i mean i didn't cover this but one uh one of their first originals was like a barry manilow concert or, or something <laughs> like that it was a huge failure but but no one knows about it everybody just looks at house of cards because they spent like a Shit ton of money <laughs> right yeah um but they hit it they they had a hit on their hands where if they didn't and then orange at the new black and they just got they were really good at what they did and the same with nickelodeon i mean you look at nickelodeon's like you know nick tunes that they came out with like rugrats ren and stimpy and doug all hits right uh it, it's just sometimes yeah there's luck but also there's got to be skill into notice what is good and run with it i mean i mean i think you can go back and look at the irishman 
I, I did not like that movie whatsoever. And I understand where, why Paramount pulled the plug because it was just long. It was overbloated. Uh, but Netflix looked at it and said, Martin Scorsese, we can't get him to do any movie, but this is a movie he wants to do. And all the studios are saying no. So right. as long as we pay for it and we do a big uh, Oscar campaign, that's going to tell other filmmakers that you can come to us. We're going to take care of you. So we don't even care if people watch it. Like it's mainly to show filmmakers come to us and you can make your quality film and we'll use an Oscar campaign. So people will think of Netflix as an award type place because Netflix is trying to build their brand into HBO. Right. Yeah. Because HBO was never about quantity. It was about quality. Now Netflix has tons of uh, quantity. I mean, you can go down and you'll see like, they just basically looked at the food network and was like, how do we copy this? Right. <laughs> like even shot for shot, like we'll set it up the same sets. We'll, we'll grab producers. Oh, what do we need? Let's get Shonda Rhimes and she can come and build our ABC on Netflix. Basically. Right. Uh, Bridgerton looks like it was just ripped out of ABC. You know, it's the same sort of style. So they're going and they're taking what worked on other networks and putting it into their content. And, the one thing Ted Sarandis said that they're really behind is animation. And that's the one area that they felt like started too late because animation takes, you know, it could take seven years to make a movie. Sure. So they're really upping that. And that's why they're buying things. I think they just bought something from, uh, from Lloyd, Sony, uh, Lord and Miller. Yep. Yeah. The, the Sony animated film, they're just going to buy whatever they can for animation to get caught up because they, they want to compete with Disney because Disney has kids. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's why you saw in the last two years, like the previous Oscars, they had two films uh, that did really well that were nominated. And now uh, this year they tried to have a couple more films that were, were up as well with Over the Moon and uh, The Willoughbys. They tried to push those pretty hard. And yeah, like you said, they just uh, got what previously was called Connected. Now it has some weird title that I forget now uh, that they got from Lord and Miller and Sony. So I, I didn't expect that one to be sold to them quite frankly, but you know, I don't know what Sony's position is right now, you know, with COVID and everything else. So yeah, it's a good cash. <laughs> pretty much i mean that uh, and paramount did that too i mean paramount's a, a constant seller to netflix in general um so you see a lot of these sources come through especially when we cover all the movies uh here on the podcast every time i see like the source over the years it's constantly been like well this was at paramount and now it's here and this was at paramount and now it was here so like you I see mean, a, a constant you just think about cloverfield paradox that was a paramount film that they knew so but Netflix was there and was going to pay them what they were hoping to make at the box office when you take, you know, their split from the theaters and they're like, you know what, this is a crap movie. We'll sell it to you. We'll be friends. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For Netflix, Netflix got what they wanted for it. They got, they got hype. That's all they wanted from the film. They didn't care if the film was good. I mean, I watched that movie and I was like, what the hell is going on? None of this <laughs> makes sense. Yeah. Uh, like, I, I started this podcast uh, a little over two years ago now, and the impetus for that was, oh, Netflix got it is getting it right now because uh, the first film we covered was a Coen Brothers film, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, and because mm -hmm. I'm a huge Coen Brothers fan, I was like, oh my god, look at what they're doing now, and then that's really when it started to explode because I was like, okay, they got the Coen Brothers, I hear they got Scorsese. Then you see like, you know, every tick off, you know, 
Alfonso Cuaron and Noah Baumbach and, and Spike Lee and David Fincher and all these people just slowly but surely coming over here. And, and yeah, it's becoming a full-fledged prestige awards factory after they won a bunch of awards for documentaries. And now, now they're trying to tick literally every box of the Oscars, <laughs> whether it be, you know, animated short or, you know, short films, you know, they're tackling all that, the animated stuff, documentary, uh, the full-fledged dramas, it's it's all over. And then we just covered uh, last week, uh, they put out a sizzle reel where they said they're literally going to put out a brand new movie every single week. And you have, you know, at least, you know, seven to 10 titles of big time blockbuster action movies with, you know, guys like the rock and Ryan Reynolds and Chris Hemsworth. Like they basically just took the Marvel and DC guys and was like, want to do a movie? And then, you know, so they're, they're getting into that now. So you're right. I mean, they're just trying to cover every aspect, trying to, you know, compete now with HBO max, bring all their stuff over for this year. And then who knows beyond that, uh, and you're right. And, and Disney, you know, kind of on their heels a little bit, you know, the Mandalorian saved a lot of things, you know, and now they're going to have some of the Marvel shows. So it's, it's wild right now. It's wild to watch all this unfold. And I figured you had a unique perspective on it because it kind of got towards the end of your documentary when you're just approaching that. Uh, is there, is there stuff that you did have in the cut, the original cut that didn't make it, that would be something that would appeal to at least a Netflix podcast uh, in that realm? Um, I mean, I, like I said, I, uh, I was editing up like I, when I was cutting the movie, like there was no names to these things. Like it wasn't Disney plus it was Disney was releasing a streamer, right? HBO and stuff like that. So like me putting in the HBO uh, max logo was the last thing I added. And it was like the, it was probably the day after I like wrapped or had a final cut and I just went back and I threw it on. <laughs> but like, yeah, I'd say like Disney plus was announced as the name probably like a month before I finished editing. So it was, it was all like everything was just about, and it was crazy. It was like Netflix has been around streaming for like 10 years and now you're having like Disney get into the game, like 10 years late. It's yeah. like, it shows you how much they were holding on to the home home theater uh experience because that's where studios were making all their money it wasn't in theatrical it was like you buying the dvd at home yeah so um i understood that they didn't want to kill their sacred cow but then you look at places like disney who had the disney vault and stuff like that and they're like well we just got to release everything like yeah (laughs) we can't sit around and make people like in two years you can because i i was waiting to you know waiting until they released the Lion King show I could show my children because I didn't have the DVD and it wasn't sold and it was in the locked away in the Disney vault. It was I so know. annoying. I never understood that a company that came in and was like, just watch it. <laughs> yeah. No, I never understood that. I worked for Best Buy years ago and I'd be like, wait, we don't have this. What are you talking about? It just never made sense uh, ever to have that business model. And, you know, now we're seeing what they can pull off when they do have all these things all <laughs> accessed at one time uh, with their subscriber base, you know, going up and up and up all the time. Now that, uh, you know, like I said, everybody should go out and check out Netflix versus the world. It's currently on Amazon Prime. Um, and, 
you know, feel free to obviously uh, talk about any other further projects. Like I know we we discussed sort of. Uh, so where are you with the office one? That's the next project you have coming through at this point, right? Yeah. So basically, with that is when I was making Netflix first, the world. I noticed that um, the two top shows at Netflix at the time when I was looking at other ideas was Friends and The Office. One or two. Right. They were kind of like really close to, and I was like. Netflix had Stranger Things and, you know, Orange is the New Black, but it was, you know, these two old comedy shows, like, you know, why? Right. And so I was in a, I, I've seen like seven to 10 episodes of Friends. So I, I wouldn't count myself as a Friends fan, but I'd seen The Office, like, you know, probably two times full through and a bunch of the uh, first two seasons multiple times. So I was always a big fan of The Office. I remember uh, getting excited on season nine where uh, Jim and Pam were going to move to Austin, which yeah. I was about to move back to Austin from L.A. And I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it just made me want to go out and find out like why this show just picked up in, in, in its fandom because it's just, it's grown in popularity. It's crazy. You don't hear about shows going off the air. Right. And now, you know, I would say the office is three or four or five times more popular than it ever was when it was on NBC. It's just like, I would, the only thing I could equate it to would be like family guy. Cause I remember I didn't watch family guy on Fox and then it was canceled and I discovered the DVDs. Right. And I started watching it and I was kind of, part of that realm for younger audience don't know but family guy became so popular <laughs> on home video dvd that fox renewed the canceled show and then it just took off and now it's like the simpsons so it's the sort of thing of like you know the office the office should have been canceled after the first season and then you had someone that was running nbc at the time kevin riley who's in the docuseries who fought for it because he knew like he was interviewing uh all the the people that watched you know, the pilot. And he said, all the younger people came back and were like, this is the only show I'd watch. Not the only show I'd watch on NBC. This is the only show I'd watch on network television. Right. He, knew, he knew he had something. He knew it was something that the younger people would, would relate to. It was just the older people on NBC didn't get it. You know, you think about it. They didn't have the docu style show when the office came out. Right. So basically what I did is I, traveled the country with uh, uh, a couple other guys and we kind of just found really interesting stories. Like there was a guy in uh, Tucson, Arizona that saved a woman that was uh, having, um, I think a heart attack and he gave her CPR based on a clip that he saw of the office of Michael Scott doing staying alive to a dummy. Oh, so wow. there's fun <laughs> stories like that. We went to, uh, the office night at Allentown, Pennsylvania, where they had Leslie David Baker come out and he plays Stanley Hudson. So just seeing people going out to see him. And uh, I went and hung out with uh, Andy Buckley, who plays David Wallace, who is Michael's boss on the show. Right. So I went to his house and he played uh, suck it for me on his, his piano. So <laughs> it's just fun. It's a good time. It's, it's, it's like one of those things like if you're not a fan of the office, I think you still will appreciate it because everyone knows the office. Like you don't have to have watched the show to have seen the fire drill gif of people run out. Sure. So it's, it's just, it's a fun time. That's all I can say. Uh, so for that one, it's going to be six episodes 
and I decided I was going to do it like the first season. The first season was only a six episode order. Each episode was 24 minutes. So that's how the docu-series is. So uh, all episodes are cut. Uh, and then episode five and six just need color and some sound design and we should be done. But that was something that I was, re- uh, I was working on when COVID hit. I was literally, I had interviewed uh, Paul Feig, who's in the, who's in the documentary got on a plane the next day to fly to Austin. And then that's when they sh- started shutting everything with down with COVID like South by Southwest was canceled when I was in the air. Uh, and I just got back to Austin and everything's like, boom, 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 boom. So I still had other things to shoot, but I was like, you know what, let's just go into post. Right. Yeah, no, it, it's, uh, I mean, Paul Feig, that's a great get. So congratulations on that. But yeah, it's, uh, it's chased him it's for a dumb. year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> Because he was he was in England shooting last Christmas, and so it was like trying to coordinate. So that's the tough thing is like I don't have an agent, I don't have you know uh, a manager. I'm no longer in Hollywood, and you know Netflix versus the world didn't even come out yet. So it was like you know cold calling, like cold emailing people, uh, getting soft. Like um, we had one person that was in the office that said yes, and then pulled out. I don't know why, um, sure. but it's just one of those things of being an independent filmmaker. Yeah, for sure. And the interesting thing is that uh, you're kind of filling this nice void uh, for a lot of people, especially of our age, where a lot of times these things would be like featurettes on DVDs or like they would be some kind of or in DVDs that you would be able to find to right. kind of enhance right. your your own viewing habits now and now you kind of have to really seek these things out like amazon prime has a decent amount of these type of things um but you don't really get it with you know films especially if they go straight to streaming and they don't have a lot of those things you know you're not gonna get a lot of those uh type of behind the scenes or fill in the story of how these things were created like the real fanboy stuff you know a lot of these things go you know, are YouTubers who do deep dives, like not professionally like you are. So I applaud your, your efforts on that. That's great. And, you know, feel free to apply that on anything I like, um, you know, or anything. I mean, if, if the office is, uh, was your muse this time, I look forward to your Shit's Creek one coming out, uh, next year. Cause I believe that's probably, my wife watched that. <laughs> well, that's the I, next I, I thing watched on a couple of them. Netflix for uh, sure. Yeah, my, my, my next doc was, um, it's called Call Me Papa, and it's about Anne Frank's father. So a little different because I've been doing <laughs> pop culture type stuff. But this one is, my wife was doing a, a, TED, a TEDx talk. Mm. And at, at her, uh, her conference or her recording, they had another lady there that actually was a pen pal of Otto Frank. Oh, interesting. Now, I'll admit to this. I didn't know Otto Frank survived. I, you know, I, I knew the diary of Anne frank i watched the movie in school and such i just figured they were all like killed in the holocaust sure but her father actually survived and he's the one that published her diary and after he published the diary kids from around the world wrote to him and so this documentary will kind of tell that story because i wanted to do something you know nostalgia is fun pop culture is fun but this was something for me to really like put out there uh of his message of forgiveness and just you know trying to find hope and sometimes a dark world so it's a little um diversion of what i'm i'm normally doing but i'm I'm really excited about it it's just you know europe's been shut down with covid so 
we have a whole production team uh, ready to go trying to figure out things. And we've just been on hold for like a year now. <laughs> it's like, we can't really go because we, we would have to quarantine for 14 days and then probably quarantine when we get to Amsterdam. And it's just a crazy world we live in. Yeah, for sure. You can't exactly move that story to Australia like a lot of the other studios are doing. You can't exactly tell that story somewhere else. Um, but yeah, that's incredible. If I if I read it right, that was something that you did as a short and is now doing the long form version of this. Right. I did a short based on a lady that um a, that had her TEDx talk. I was like, this is a really great story. So I did a uh, I think it came out to be about 14 minute a 14 minute short mm -hmm. and then um i sent that off to um this one guy reached out to me wanted to meet up at sundance which i wasn't going to go to sundance so i was like oh we can meet at south by this is before everything started closing with covid and he saw the short he loved it uh really connected to it and they're a company out of england that's done a bunch of high-end sundance films tiff films with like anthony hopkins and stuff like that so we signed a deal and now we're just working on getting uh funding and things like that no it sounds terrific uh you know it sounds like a pretty powerful piece so i i wish you all the uh luck with that one as well um yeah i, I cry every time i see it and i, <laughs> like, <laughs> for I it's just something about i mean for me i connect to it i'm i'm, I'm not jewish but I, I can relate to it as a father uh you know for him losing you know his wife and two daughters like and then still finding hope was something i could really uh, connect with. So, um, yeah, I, I just can't wait to finally make it and, and share that, that message with the world. Yeah. I, I'm a father of two Jewish kids and married to a Jewish woman. So I absolutely, you know, between the fatherhood and all the history that is surrounding me at all times, I think, uh, that will be something that I'll be searching out for as well. Um, so congratulations on all your work. I hope uh, the best of luck for you with all these projects going forward. Um, so we've said a million times the, that the, the film is right now on Amazon Prime. I definitely recommend everyone go seek this out. Um, is there anything else you would like uh, our, our audience to be directed to? Website, Twitter, any action you have going on surrounding this movie? Spread the word. Uh yeah, I mean, if anyone checks out the movie, if you leave a review on like Amazon or IMDb, that helps people find the film. It helps it get a higher uh, rating, so it's easier for people to find and enjoy. And Amazon has a weird thing called CER. It's how they, they decide how you get paid. Right. And so it's based on ratings and view time and stuff like that. Yeah, so if any of your people check out the film, if they could just drop a review, like give an honest review. I mean... I'm all about honesty. Like if you enjoyed it, great. If you didn't enjoy it, well, maybe you watched it angrily. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. But um, people, people can hit me up on uh, Twitter. It's just uh, dude versus movie on Twitter. And I'm on Instagram. Um, I don't know what I am on Instagram just because I, I finally got on to it because I think you have to do social, even though I'd rather <laughs> not do social. <laughs> sure. But I like to talk to people people on there. I mean, through through Twitter, I got to experience Netflix first of the world releasing in Japan. I found out what the Japanese title was, which is like Netflix ambition to conquer the world, which is a <laughs> really interesting way they described it. Uh, but I was able to see because it, it, you know it's in theaters in Japan during a pandemic, which is amazing because in the U.S. you have to see it on like Amazon Prime. So. Right. 
Um, yeah, so hit me up. Maybe I'll say hi. I appreciate you coming on. Wish you all the best of luck. Uh, thank you for everything, Sean. And uh, I hope everyone goes out and checks out your film. Thanks so much for having me.